welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode. I'm recording this around about Easter times, so end of March, start of April. Officially, we're one month into autumn because in Australia, our seasons start on the first of the month, even though in other parts of the world, they sometimes start around the, uh, to match the equinoxes, so they start around the 21st. But anyway, but here in Australia, we're one month into autumn already. It's still sunny and uh, warm outside here in Perth. And it's just over a year since the coronavirus pandemic really hit the world and we had our major lockdowns, shutdowns, the most severe restrictions that we've had. And in that last year, of course, we've all been through a lot of change and disruption and we seem to be coming out on the other side of that disruption. In other parts of the world, uh, vaccinations have rolled out in a big way. Here in Australia, where we've had very low cases for a long time, we've had the luxury of being able to wait a little bit and uh, not rush into vaccinations under emergency use authorization, as, as has happened in other parts of the world. But if you remember, about a year ago, one of the big changes that happened was, of course, office workers uh, scrambled to be able to work from home. And today I want to talk about that and I want to talk about what that means for the workplace of the future. In February 2020, it was a few weeks before the coronavirus pandemic first put us into lockdown, I published a blog post and it was called, Are You Ready for the Flexible Work Revolution? This was before we had any idea that there would be a pandemic heading our way. And I asked the question, which was only hypothetical at that time, what if officers were illegal? And I said, if that happened, then we'd face new challenges, such as we'd have less social interaction in person. We would have had a lower quality of face-to-face interactions because we'd be using video. And we'd have technology glitches with online meeting software. Now, at the time that I wrote that post, I wasn't thinking about an impending global pandemic. But a few weeks later, the office did become illegal for many workers. And the things that I suggested came true. And the point of my blog post at the time wasn't to say, here's a pandemic coming our way, but I wanted to advance an idea that that wasn't new, but also wasn't common, and it certainly wasn't mainstream. The idea that the office didn't have to be the default workplace for knowledge workers. And then the pandemic came and it forced this idea on us. And for knowledge workers, the biggest workplace change was people working from home, for many of them, for the first time. And to their surprise, employees and employers found that it was better than they expected. It was, it was much more effective than they expected, even in the middle of a global crisis. See, the office has only been the standard workplace of knowledge workers for the last 200 years. And initially, it was only by necessity. You had to go there because that's the only place where you could find files, you could meet with colleagues, and you could get access to secretarial staff. But those needs no longer exist. So it is appropriate to consider other workplaces as well. And the pandemic has forced us to reconsider that. So today, I want to explore the workplace of the future at three levels. From the simplest kind to the more complex kind. So in summary, the first one is a hybrid team where many organizations are going to have teams with some people working in more than one place, sometimes in the office, sometimes away from the office. Currently, away from the office typically means working from home, but it doesn't need to be that way. 
The second kind of workplace is where you've got a distributed team, where you've got teams who are going to include people who don't live within commuting distance of the office. They could be working at different times. And the third one is the fluid team. And this is where the best teams are assembled dynamically as they're needed. And you're going to have different people coming in and out as required for specific project needs. So very broadly, if you think about hybrid teams, distributed teams and fluid teams, the difference with a hybrid team is the place where people work. The difference with a distributed team is the times that people can work. And the difference in the fluid team are the people who actually do the work. That's very broad, but it's a good way for us to think about these three different kinds of teams. So let's start with a hybrid team where employees want to mix and match their workplaces. So of course, early in the pandemic, organizations with office workers scrambled to allow those people to work from home. And many leaders saw it only as a short-term response to the crisis. But to their surprise, they found that productivity increased and many people enjoyed working from home. And all the research now shows that many employees want this flexible work arrangement to continue, even after the crisis ends. They like the dynamic of the office, but they want the flexibility to work at least one day a week from home. So this is the idea of the hybrid team. And broadly speaking, employees love it, managers hate it. That's a very broad generalization, but it's true across many organizations. Because for those managers, it's the next necessary evil. They will do everything they can to bring everybody back into the office as soon as possible. And they just can't do that now. But if you're a more open-minded leader, the hybrid team offers some new opportunities for the workplace of the future. And not only for the workplace itself, but in the way that work gets done. So let's talk about that. The first thing to look at is that you've now got people working in two places. And you might remember as the strictest restrictions of the pandemic eased, organizations with employees working from home started moving them back to the office. And at the time that started happening, I saw a spate of articles and blog posts and reports talking about a safe return to the workplace. Now, obviously, the intent of those was to help leaders and organizations plan a safe and responsible transition, and that's good. But the thing I take issue with is that they use the phrase the workplace to refer to the office, and that's not so good. So it's all about a safe return to the workplace. See, long before the pandemic forced people to work from home, many teams were already working in multiple workplaces, sometimes without any offices at all. And it's not just a temporary measure, and it doesn't make them second-class citizens. For example, for years, Microsoft has encouraged their employees to work from co-working spaces, so they get the chance to engage and interact with non-Microsoft people, including customers. And Matt Donovan, the general manager of Microsoft Office marketing team, said, Keeping our teams fresh and connected where great ideas happen in the marketplace can only make them better. And I agree. And more recently, in July last year, 2020, the global industrial giant Siemens announced that it will allow all their employees all around the world to work from wherever they want, away from the office, two to three days a week. Now, of course, initially, wherever you want means working from home, but it does extend to co-working spaces and other places as well in the future. And Roland Bush, a senior leader at Siemens, said, we trust our employees and empower them to shape their work themselves so they can achieve the best possible results. So 
Don't call the office the workplace and don't refer to your out-of-office team members as remote workers. If you do that, you're diminishing their value and you're limiting the opportunity to build a really effective hybrid team. So adopt the attitude out of sight, top of mind and always consider the effect of every decision on these out-of-office team members. The next thing is to reward results and this is about your mindset. Imagine walking into your office on a working day and you find it empty. What do you think? Was it a public holiday? Did you miss the memo about the company picnic? Was this an elaborate prank from all your co-workers? Was there a COVID-19 outbreak that you didn't hear about? See, some people feel exactly that way when they're working from home. They switch on their laptop in the morning, they log in and they wonder, hmm, is anybody else here? And this is especially true for leaders. Your team members who are working at home are busy and they feel really productive, but you wonder how you can manage them if you can't see them. Or you gravitate towards the people in the office and ignore the rest of your team. Some research at Harvard in July 2020 said that 40% of managers aren't confident that they can manage their workers remotely. So, And this falls into two areas. First of all, they say, I can't do it. They don't think they can coordinate remote workers effectively. They feel they can't manage remote workers if they can't see them. And they don't have the confidence to influence them if they can't see them and if they're not in the same physical place. The second part of it is they think that the workers themselves can't do it. They believe that remote workers usually perform worse. They think they don't have the skills to be able to work remotely and independently and they're skeptical that they're going to remain motivated. So what do you do? Some leaders address this in the wrong way. They have pointless Zoom or Teams meetings, they have random phone calls that interrupt productive work or they force people to keep their webcam on all day just so they can monitor them and see them at their desk. Um, Yeah, this is a real thing. But those are inappropriate solutions because what you're trying to do is fix your discomfort or your feeling of being disconnected from the rest of your team. And the right solution is instead to change your focus. So instead of thinking about processes, think about outcomes. Instead of activity, think about results. And instead of inputs, think about outputs. So even if you don't like to admit it, when you see people in an office, you subconsciously measure their inputs. You see when they arrive, especially if it's late. You see when they leave, especially if it's early. And you see when they're busy and not. And this doesn't work in a hybrid team because you can no longer see them. You can't see their inputs, so you have to rely on their outputs. And instead of monitoring their processes, their activity and the time spent, start measuring the results that they achieve. Look at the quality of their work and assess their contribution towards achieving your team's goals. Now, it's not easy to change this mindset because you've probably become unconsciously competent in doing it the old way. So when you've got a hybrid team, it's really tempting to simply focus on the team members who are spending their time in the office. But that hurts collaboration and productivity just in the short term and it damages your team culture in the long term. So you have to make a conscious effort to measure and reward everybody based on their results. The next thing to do is think about trust and you really have to build trust differently. In an office, people build trust with each other through personal interactions. They work in the same building, they park in the same car park, they they eat at the same canteen or the same local cafes, they bring in birthday cakes, they send their kids to the same schools, they walk their dogs in the same park, they take the same holidays, they support the same sporting teams or jokingly spar with each other about opposing sporting teams. 
and they might watch the same Netflix shows and talk about them at the office. Now, these dynamics don't translate easily to a hybrid team, even if you all know each other in person and you're just working one or two days a week away from the office. When team members aren't physically together, they build trust in different ways. In fact, they build it through their work. They use things like responsiveness, consistency, reliability, and professional integrity as the real indicators of trust. And this works both ways. The in-office people can expect this of their working from home colleagues and vice versa. Just be careful because you can't rely on people doing these things automatically. In the office, you can tolerate some loose guidelines for things like reliability. For example, if you promise to send somebody a report by 2 p.m., but you can see them still stuck in their previous meeting at that time, you know that you have a few extra minutes grace, but that won't work if you can't see them. So as a team, set clear guidelines on what you can expect of each other. For example, clarify expectations about how people respond to requests. For example, you might have a rule that says that you're going to reply to email within one working day. Uh, choose appropriate communication channels. For example, you say that you're going to use Slack rather than email for urgent requests. Um, set deadlines for a reason and explain the reason. So if you say, I need that by 1.30 p.m. tomorrow, tell them so I can review it before my 2 p.m. meeting. Just be careful not to create these guidelines by yourself. Involve your team, then they'll own them and understand the reasons behind them. And even if they aren't perfect, and of course they won't be, it's better to build them as a team and then continue to refine them to improve them. Because people do take ownership of them and they'll respect them more if they build them together. I also think you should follow the principle of equal, not same. So when leading a hybrid team, don't try to treat your in-office people and your at-home people the same way. If you do, you'll be forced to find, well, the lowest common denominator. You have to find something that works for everybody, and that's the worst of both worlds. So think equal, not same. So treat everybody equally, but find the best way to leverage the unique strengths of each of those workplaces. Let me give you an example. Suppose you have a mentoring program, and if you do, you probably look to match your in-office team members with mentors who are also in the office. Now, for those who are working mostly from home, instead of forcing them to do online mentoring, which may not be as personal and deep, help them find external mentors. Now, those external mentors don't have the same in-depth experience of the organization, but they can provide broader outside experience instead, and that can also be valuable for the people being mentored. Now, of course, when you think this way, it takes more thought and creativity than just settling for the lowest common denominator, or even worse, only doing what works for the in-office team. But you really have to put in this effort if you're truly committed to the hybrid team as a long-term work style. And, and the thing is, when you start looking through the equal, not same lens, you'll notice that everything could be changed or improved. Now, some items are obvious, and then you might as well tackle them immediately. After that, one way to find out what you could prioritize is to make a list of your organization's values. You know, the things that are on the About Us page of your website, but nobody ever looks at and nobody remembers them. Have a look at that list and invite each of your team members to go through that list and choose items that they think are important. And here's the thing. Ask them to explain to you what that means for them in practice. For example, suppose learning 
is a key value. Now, one person might want that through mentoring, another one by gaining a formal qualification, and another one by doing a three-month stint shadowing somebody else in the team. So what you do is do your best to give each person what they want. Now, within reason, of course. And this approach not only helps people individually, it also creates new opportunities for everybody else in the team. For example, let's go back to the mentoring example. If you offer external mentors to your at-home team members, there's no reason you can't make that same offer to those working in the office. It just means that for their mentoring sessions, they might go out to a local cafe or they do it after work. So when you start applying the equal not same filter, it improves the workplace for everybody in your team. So that's the first area, which is a hybrid team. Let's now look at the next one, which is the distributed team. This is where you let go of the office and create a better workplace. See, when you create the infrastructure for people to work from home, even for just one or two days a week, it's just as easy for them to work from other locations, such as co-working spaces, airline lounges, in the future, maybe even self-driving cars. And now the next stage is to employ people who never work in the office. And that's a truly distributed team, where an office is just one of the many permanent workplaces for your team. Now, this might seem like it's only a small extension of the hybrid team. You may think it's just like, instead of them working from home, they can work from a co-working space. But actually, it's a very different dynamic. Your team members might never meet in person. You can't arrange days when everybody's in the office because not everybody is within commute distance of the office and online collaboration becomes the norm. Now, these are disadvantages, but they force you to think differently about your ideal workplace. You no longer have the benefits of the office, but you also don't have its disadvantages. And that lets you really think about what the workplace of the future is going to look like. One thing it does, it helps you find lost talent. A couple of years ago, in January 2019, Catherine Thomas, who's a lawyer with over 20 years legal experience in Australia and in the UK, launched a new business. It was called Free Range Lawyers. And what she did was she picked lawyers who wanted to work from home and she matched them with law firms who are willing to work with those lawyers. Now, the less flexible law firms missed out on their talent because they insisted on everybody working from an office. But free-range lawyers offered a service that allowed the more open-minded businesses to tap into that otherwise lost talent. And the pandemic gave people the chance to think about that as a real possibility. It pushed that kind of idea into the mainstream. Not everyone took advantage of it, but it was a real possibility. Uh, Jason Fried, who wrote a book called Remote, Office Not Required, when he was talking about commuting, he said, commuting isn't just bad for you, your relationships and the environment, it's bad for business. And it doesn't have to be that way. And this is the point behind lost talent. When you're considering how to expand your team, start by looking for this lost talent who don't live and don't want to live within commuting distance of you. Here are some examples. First of all, regional. So there's a myth that people are abandoning regional Australia for the bright lights of the big cities. In fact, it's the other way around, according to the Regional Australia Institute. Even before the pandemic, people were moving. The net migration was from the cities to the regions. And you might find your best people there, either because they're locals or because they moved there for a sea change, a tree change, or now, increasingly, a COVID change. The second thing is national. Consider recruiting team members who live in other cities without all the barriers of relocation. The next thing is parents. There are many smart, savvy, professional women, well, 
mostly women, but some men as well, who leave the workforce when they have children and they want to return, but they want some flexibility. They may, they may want more flexible hours. They don't want to do the daily commute. They may only want to work during school hours. Then look at people who are disabled or differently abled. There are many competent people who've got the skills to do the job, but they find it difficult or impossible to commute to an office every day. And the last one is partners. Some of your best people might have left because their partners relocated. But this doesn't have to be the case if you have a truly distributed team because their talent can move and you still have access to them. And when you think this way about a distributed team, it really widens your talent pool and gives you a competitive edge because you've got a much bigger group of people to choose from. The next level from a distributed team is a global team. But this one's not so easy. Let me give you an example. Some organizations who are forced to let staff work from home during the pandemic now offer this as a permanent arrangement. But this change sometimes comes with a catch, a lower salary. For example, the American software company VMware is based in San Francisco, which is a very expensive city, and they allow people to move from the more expensive San Francisco Bay Area to the much less expensive Denver in Colorado, and they can work from home but they face a pay cut, pretty significant, about a 20% pay cut. And companies like Facebook and Twitter have got similar policies around pay localization. Now, whether you think that's fair or unfair, it's just one of the many challenges of building a global team. If you've already got team members outside commute distance of your office, it might seem like it's only a small step to cast the net wider, but you're opening up a can of worms. Pay localization might be your biggest issue when you've got staff concentrated in a few close towns, but when you go out further, especially to other countries, many other issues arise. Even when everybody speaks a common language, it's easy for misunderstandings to occur. I remember when I was working in the UK in the 1990s, I was there on secondment from my uh, organisation in Perth to a parent company based in the UK. And I remember one day my UK manager came to me uh, with a puzzled look on his face and he asked me to translate an email that my Perth manager had sent him. And he said, can you take a squeeze at this and get back to me in the Arvo? At least he knew that he needed help. But that isn't always the case. Some words and phrases mean completely different things in different places, and that can unintentionally cause confusion. Just as one example, in Australia, when we say that we're going to table an agenda item, it means we're bringing it to the meeting. In other words, we're putting it on the table. In the USA, it means we're deferring it. So putting it on the table rather than discussing it. Now, these examples are just the tip of the iceberg. So be very careful when extending your distributed team into a global team, even if it's just one person outside your country. There's some obvious differences, things like culture and language and time zones and pay scales and living standards. But there's also a minefield of complex workplace issues, um, employment law, immigration laws, privacy regulations, dispute resolution, and other things like that. There are some benefits to global team, but there are also some challenges. As a survey done two years ago highlighted some of them. Let me, let me share with you some of those results. So first of all, they said collaboration is surprisingly good. So global teams are highly collaborative and they're pretty low maintenance. And almost 90% of global teams work together at least weekly and they're less likely to report problems with their collaboration. That said, 
collaboration isn't easy. So the report also said that companies are struggling with language barriers and time zones. A third of multilingual companies are struggling with language barriers, and nearly half of them say that collaborating across time zones is a real issue for them. Here's another benefit. Diversity is an asset. So the report says that companies see that the global perspectives and the diversity that they get with their thinking, creativity, access to talent anywhere are the leading benefits they get from global teams. But the other side of diversity and inclusion, which is inclusion, is a challenge. So the report says that global teams are struggling with inclusion. Global employees still lack equal influence and about 60% of companies say people in the headquarters wield more influence than the rest of them who are sometimes seen as working in remote outposts. One other benefit, some functions are easy to outsource. So the report says that global teams are turning to experts on local culture, finance and legal work. So it says that legal assistance and payroll are the most likely functions to be outsourced. But on the other hand, red tape makes it difficult. The report says that dealing with time zone differences and legal concerns, again, tops a list of challenges for global teams. So by all means, build a global team. I don't want to turn you away from it, but don't do it without your HR team by your side. Let's take something I mentioned and look at it in a little bit more detail. It's this idea of uh, diversity and inclusion, and especially including everybody. I remember a client presentation that I did during the pandemic and many teams were working from home. And in the presentation, I was talking about the impact of distributed teams on leadership and the employee experience. And the discussion turned to diversity and inclusion, which is an important topic when you're talking about distributed teams. And I remember one participant asking me, as workforces will be spread across the world instead of in one building, Will this eliminate the need for jobs like diversity and inclusion officer because the workforce will end up being more diverse anyway? Now, it's an interesting question, but to me, the answer is clearly no. Diversity and inclusion matter even more with distributed teams because they're going to create new challenges and in different areas than we usually consider when we're talking about diversity and inclusion. So first of all, when you think about diversity, a global team might automatically be more diverse because you're working with people from different ethnic backgrounds, politics, languages, dialects, religious beliefs, work ethics, socioeconomic circumstances and more. And that team probably ticks more diversity boxes than a team consisting only of people who happen to live within commuting distance of your office. But diversity is only one half of the diversity and inclusion banner. And there's no value in having a diverse team if you don't tap into that diversity. And that's the inclusion part. Putting it another way, diversity is like having a whole bunch of colored textures and inclusion is about using them. So even when you've got a more diverse team, you must still work to make it truly inclusive. In fact, because your team isn't all in the same office, you've got to work even harder, especially with the people that you don't see every day. Let me tell you some of the inclusion challenges that you'll face with a distributed team. Now, this doesn't apply to everybody in the team, but it's something to think about as a leader. I'll share with you 10 things. Number one, time zones. If most team members are in one time zone, how do you cater equally for those who are in other time zones? Number two is spoken English. Do your team members discriminate against others who speak English poorly or who speak it with a strong accent? Number three is written English. Do your team members unconsciously judge people who don't write well or use a different colloquial style of writing? 
Number four is public holidays. Do you cater for the people who have different public holidays in their country or even in their state? Number five is the head office mentality, which I mentioned already. If some team members work from an office, do others feel left out? Number six is hierarchy, hierarchy and authority. Some people value qualifications over experience, they don't respect younger bosses, or they don't work with women in authority. Number seven is family. In some cultures, it's just taken for granted that you don't think twice about missing an important client meeting if you have to help a family member. Now, we'd all do that, but it varies to the extent that we'd go. Number eight is work-life integration. When you think about CBD workers, people who move somewhere for a sea change, and people in other countries, they want different things from their work and how that integrates with their life. Number nine might be obvious technology skills. It's easy to marginalize people, even unintentionally, if they struggle with technology, even if they're otherwise competent. And number 10, which is related to that, is their internet connection. So this has nothing to do with their skills directly, but some people just have a poor internet connection. They can't connect to online meetings. They need to turn off video every time they're in a meeting. And because of that, they struggle to participate equally. And the rest of the team can, over time, diminish the value that they provide and push them to the side. Now, it's easier to include people who are in the same office as you because you see them all the time. And it really does take a conscious effort to include other team members. And if your office, your city or your time zone is perceived as a head office for your team, you've got to work even harder to include everybody else. The last thing I want to talk about with a distributed team is managing conflict. So a distributed team might include team members who are working in different time zones and locations, they might speak different languages, and they might be from different cultures. They don't have the same personal rapport as in-office teams. They might only collaborate using digital tools, and they sometimes feel isolated and alone. And that means you must take even more care to manage conflict when it arises. And of course, conflict resolution is a very big topic, and I don't intend to handle it all here. But the first thing that you can do is identify the cause of the conflict when it arises, and then use that to choose your role. And broadly, let me classify conflicts into five areas, going from the easiest to the hardest. So number one is information. So something is missing, incomplete or ambiguous. This is the easiest situation to address. And your role is to be an advisor. So identify the problem and help the two parties work together to find their own solution. Number two is environment. When an external factor causes a conflict, be the manager who gets it resolved or fixed. Absolutely ask them for their suggestions, but the solution might be beyond their authority. And if it's something that you can fix, do so or get it done. And if it's not, if it's outside your authority, then bring in other relevant parties to get it fixed. Number three is skills. Some conflicts just occur because people simply don't know how to work well and how to work effectively in a distributed team. They may not know how to start an online meeting or use a virtual workspace. They don't know how to manage email or they might not choose the right communication channels. So take on the role here of trainer or coach. So build their skills and give them the professional development they need so that they, they can avoid future conflicts. The next one is values. Because sometimes a clash of personal values causes conflict. For example, people from different cultures think and act differently in specific situations. And here, your role is to be a mediator. So facilitate a discussion between the parties involved or involve your HR team if it's something that, again, that they should be involved in. 
And finally, number five is identity. The participant's sense of identity could put them at odds with each other. Yeah, for example, they might say, as a more senior person, I give the orders. Or someone might say, as a stay-at-home parent, my children come first. Now, if you tackle this yourself, you're taking on the role of counsellor. But what you'll find is most of these issues should really be handled by your HR team. So conflicts are going to happen. They're inevitable in any team. But with a distributed team, it's even more important to address them promptly and to get them resolved appropriately. Let's look at the third kind of team. We've looked at the hybrid team and the distributed team. The third kind of team is the fluid team. And really, the best people in the world are waiting to work with you if you give them the chance to do it. I reckon if you ask any dedicated sports fan about their favorite team, they will happily and instantly tell you all about the history, the players, the current strength, where they are on the ladder, and everything else you would ever want to know about them, and probably more than that as well. But although many fans think of them as a team, the club or the franchise that they belong to thinks in terms of a squad. So they look beyond the players who play on any given day. They think about the extended group of players who could play in the season, and they even consider trading players with other teams to strengthen their squad. Now, we don't usually think of work teams this way, but we could. You could bring together the best people on the planet for any given project, collaborate until you complete the job, and then you all go your separate ways. And that's a fluid team. Now, in practice, core members of the team stay together for multiple projects, And you bring in the skills, experience and other resources that are required. So let's talk about how you make your team more fluid. First, let's look at the extended team. Think about a ride-sharing service like Uber. When it first entered a new market where it was competing with and, let's face it, disrupting the taxi industry in that area, many people welcomed it. Not so much the taxi drivers, but other people, because it provided a better service for customers. But... As it grew into a mainstream transport option, society turned its attention to the way that it treated its drivers, in particular, treating them as independent contractors rather than employees, which means that they don't get the benefits and protections that employees enjoy under the law. Now, this is an ongoing issue, but even if Uber improves conditions for these contractors, those freelance drivers will probably still be treated differently from Uber's other employees. Just be careful you don't fall into the same trap with your own team. The infrastructure that supports a distributed team also lets you extend it to outsiders, who you can use on an ad hoc basis to complement and enhance your core experience and your core expertise. And this lets you continue serving your customers and your other stakeholders while remaining flexible and agile when the world changes around you. Of course, this is not a new idea. You might already be outsourcing some work to external specialists such as lawyers and online marketers, accountants, management consultants, trainers, graphic designers, call center operators in another country and key providers in your supply chain. In the past, these typically happen on a transactional basis. So you still treat these people as outsiders. They're kept at arm's length on the end of a purchase order or an invoice. When you include these people as part of the team, and you truly include them, that changes your relationship with them and their relationship with you. They feel more committed, they become more invested in your goals, they offer more input and value, and they act as partners rather than just suppliers. 
even though they don't work full-time in your team, and some of them may be even working for many other clients, and they don't expect to remain in the team after the project is complete, still treat them like full team members. Now, many small business owners already operate this way. They don't have the financial resources to insource everything that they need. If you work in a larger organization with more capability to provide those resources in-house, even in that situation, don't overlook the value that you get from extending your team to outsiders. The next place you might think of extending your team is customers. How do you get customers on your side? Now, in 2020, Sandra Choi, who is a creative director at the designer footwear company Jimmy Choo, launched a competition for fans to design their own fantasy shoes. Now, anybody could submit a design sketch to Choi, and she posted her top 10 choices on Instagram, and then the community voted for their favorites. They got almost 200,000 votes, and five winners were chosen, and then they worked with the Jimmy Choo team to turn those sketches into commercial products. So this is an example of an organization inviting customers to join their teams. This process is called co-creation. Sometimes it's called crowdsourcing. And it doesn't always take the form of a competition, as I just explained, but that's a common choice because it's a low risk and high value option. Customer co-creation can happen at many stages. For example, it can happen in development, where customers join your design and development team to advise on new products and services. It can happen at testing. Uh, software companies often roll out pre-release versions of their products to selected customers for testing. It can happen at promotion. So you give customers the resources to promote and sell your products and services through their networks. And it can happen at support. So you provide an online community where customers support and help each other. Let me give you some examples of companies who embrace co-creation in practice. DHL is one. In DHL's Innovation Center workshops, customers and staff collaborate to suggest new initiatives for the company. And it sometimes leads to innovative products like the, the Parcel Copter, which is a drone delivery service for remote areas. IKEA is another example. IKEA's platform Co-Create IKEA involves customers and fans to contribute new product ideas and they do it through boot camps, through collaborations with universities and they run innovation labs. And in return, IKEA offers cash rewards and licensing deals. BMW also does it. In 2010, the Co-Creation Lab ran a contest asking their fans and customers for new product ideas and opinions and it generated more than 300 ideas including the winner which I think is really interesting. It was called Pick Me Up Please which is a mobility system for pedestrians. Lego is another example. In 2004 they launched a platform called Lego Ideas and this was for fans to suggest new product ideas and so far it's already had over a million suggestions and the winners are rewarded with recognition input into new product development, and sometimes even a percentage of sales revenue. Coca-Cola. In 2018, Coke ran a co-creation project in Southeast Asia to match its products to local tastes and preferences in that part of the world. So what the company did was they rented out space in local eateries and they invited customers to suggest variations of the classic Coke products. One more example is Heineken. In 2012, Heineken invited designers to develop a new club concept. So they used an online crowdsourcing platform to share their ideas with Heineken fans and created the Heineken Concept Club, which was launched during Milan Design Week that year. So co-creation can work, but 
it does require a high level of trust and transparency because you're lowering the drawbridge and inviting customers inside your fortress. If you've got loyal customers and a supportive community, people will rush to help because they want you to succeed. But if you don't have that relationship, inviting customers to co-create can be risky. Even a simple competition can be abused or trolled. You might remember a few years ago, the UK government invited the public to name their latest research vessel and the most popular vote was Boaty McBoatface. Sadly, that was a choice that was overruled by the government agency that was running the poll, but it shows what can go wrong with the co-creation project. But don't let that discourage you from inviting customers into your team. If you do it well, it's one of the best ways to generate new ideas. The next thing is to find the positive angle. I recall a conversation that I had with a salesperson who described how he flew across the country to meet a potential customer about a multi-million dollar deal. And he won that account over dinner because he created this personal rapport because they discovered a shared love for gliding. And he told me he would never have been able to do that with online meetings alone. And you know what? He's probably right. He doesn't have the skills to close an online deal, but that doesn't mean that nobody does. In fact, for decades, people around the world have been doing just that, closing deals with never meeting people in person. And the same applies to fluid teams. They're significantly different from in-office teams, so the old rules just don't apply. And one of the biggest mistakes leaders make is they try to apply the old rules to this completely new environment and structure. For example, your team might have experienced online meetings for the first time in 2020. And when you do, it's easy to point out their drawbacks and disadvantages. For example, we say, we don't get cues from body language. It's too easy for people to get distracted. We never seem to get the technology right. There's always somebody who has trouble with the tech. We get Zoom fatigue from attending too many meetings. We don't have informal chats walking back to our desks. Now, all of those things might be true. But don't compare everything new with the status quo just to find faults, because that limits your perspective and it blinds you to the strengths of the alternative. Instead, look for the positive angles in the alternatives. So don't hold up the status quo as your starting point. Instead, argue for the opposite. For example, think about the benefits of online meetings. Uh, we can invite people from outside the office. The room isn't occupied by the previous meeting running late. We can record it automatically. It gets transcribed and stored for easy search and retrieval later. We can review the recording for coaching purposes. People who couldn't attend can watch the recording later. If you'd like to do this exercise for yourself and with your team, here are some other examples. So the idea here with this exercise is to complete each of these sentences with at least three responses. And sometimes you'll find even more than three responses. So the, the example I just gave you is to say, we prefer online meetings to in-person meetings because dot dot dot. And then you have to find the responses. Here's another one. We like having a team member who lives in some regional town because dot dot dot. We like having some people who don't speak English fluently because dot dot dot. We like people working in different time zones because dot dot dot. We like having half the team living in another country because dot dot dot. We like having independent contractors rather than full-time staff because dot dot dot. We like outsourcing some function to freelancers because Dot, dot, dot. We like the extra time and effort it takes to onboard new project members because... Dot, dot, dot. We like not being able to bond over Friday night drinks because... Dot, dot, dot. Give you one more example. We like flexible hours where not everybody is always available at the same time because... 
dot dot dot. Now some of these will be easier for you to answer than others and some of them might not even be relevant for you but it's useful to do the exercise just to get into the practice of arguing for the opposite. The old way isn't always the best way. Disrupt your thinking by taking a different perspective and find another way. The last thing I want to say about a fluid team, and in fact this applies to everything we've talked about already, is to make it anti-fragile. Let me explain with a technology example. In the world of cybersecurity, IT professionals create something called a honeypot to protect their networks from hackers. So a honeypot is a computer network that they deliberately design to attract hackers. So they deliberately try to grab these uh, hacking bees towards the honey. And then they examine the hacking attempts so they can understand what the hackers are doing and they can then build a better defense for their real networks. And the hackers don't even know that they're being watched and monitored. And unlike a decoy, which diverts attacks from a real target, it's like carrying a second wallet to give to a mugger, a honeypot deliberately attracts hackers. Unless it's attacked, the honeypot has no real value. The honeypot's an example of something that's anti-fragile, which is a word invented by the author Nassim Nicholas Taleb to describe things that get stronger from external shock. See, we know what fragile means. Fragile things are easily damaged. And if I ask you what's the opposite of fragile, most people would say things like resilient or robust because they describe things that aren't easily damaged. But there's no English word to describe things that get stronger from disruption and chaos. So Taleb invented the word anti-fragile. An anti-fragile organization thrives in a fast-changing volatile world. Not only does it not fear change and disruption, it welcomes it. Now the more that you adopt the ideas that we've talked about here about teams, the more anti-fragile you become. If you think about the old style team with your fixed members in a fixed location working fixed hours, it's the most fragile because it only works in very specific environments. It doesn't need a pandemic to make it fall apart. It's easily rattled by other changes with competitors, regulations, workforce demographics, changes in technology and changes in consumer preferences. And at the other extreme, a fluid team, which is more diverse, thrives in many environments because it, by its nature, reflects those environments. Team members have different demographics, they live in different regions and different countries, they span multiple time zones, they have different values. When the world changes, different people in the team step up to share their expertise and their lived experience. The more the world changes around you, the more you can leverage your team's diverse skills and talents. When a new social media platform appears, the Gen Z team members step up. When a new regional opportunity arises, your local team members can advise you. When your work in one region is affected by natural disaster, other regions step up to help. And that makes your team and your organization more anti-fragile. So we've looked at these three different kinds of teams. The hybrid team, where some people are in the office, some people not in the office. The distributed team, which doesn't require an office at all. People could be working from anywhere around the world in different times. And we looked at the fluid team, where even the people in your team could change from project to project. As we're coming out the other side of the disruption of this pandemic, there's a big push and a big temptation to get people back into the office as soon as possible. Now, you might say, that's not necessarily a bad thing, and I'd agree with you to some extent. But it would be a pity if we miss the opportunity to think about what the better workplace of the future might look like. As somebody said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I think we have a real opportunity now to rethink the future of work and the workplace of the future. 
I hope you enjoyed that and found something valuable for your personal and your professional life. And if you did get some value from it, please share the love by reviewing and rating it in the place that you get your podcasts. That really does help to promote it to other people as well. By the way, everything I've talked about today when we're talking about teams and the workplace of the future is an extract from my new book, Disrupted, which I'm just doing the final edits on now. So by the time I publish my next podcast episode, that should be out in print. But what you've just listened to is the team chapter from that book. And if you'd like to download free with my compliments uh, another chapter from the book, this is the empathy chapter, then you can go to the website now and you can download the free sample chapter. So the website address to go to is disruptedbook.com.au. And if you want to engage with me to go deeper with these ideas, let's talk. Especially now as we're all trying to navigate and lead our way through this time of great uncertainty, it's more important than ever before to be able to offer clarity and confidence so that we can really be fit for the future. I offer conference keynote presentations both online and in person, workshops and masterclasses, mentoring and coaching. And you can find out more at gihanperera.com. And while you're there, you can also find my blog, my newsletter, more episodes from this podcast and some public online presentations. And these are all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team and, of course, yourself as well. Stay safe and healthy and I'll see you in the future. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.